What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I get shattered like a light bulb in an October moon. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Polkabum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So today, we decided we would talk about something that's very important to us and really to most people on Earth. Yeah. And that's light. Yeah. We actually had a brilliant idea. Oh. Light bulb went off right over our heads. Ding. And we decided, let's talk about the future of light and light bulbs. Uh, kind of a focus on light bulbs, but we'll, we have to get to light bulbs before well, we can talk about the future of them. Really what we mean is focusing on artificial light. Yeah, not just light that we can get by waiting around till the sun comes up. <laughs> right, because artificial light is far more important and revolutionary to our lives than we often give it credit for. I mean, think about all of the ways your life would be different if we didn't have artificial light. If I, you could only see what was going on in the daytime. I would have to make wake up much earlier in the morning. Yeah. I would uh I would have stubbed all of my toes off by now. <laughs> as I just wandered blindly through my house. Yeah, yeah. I, I do that with light, so I'm pretty <laughs> sure I just wouldn't have toes anymore. 
Well, I'm of the opinion that the story of artificial light is actually one of the most interesting questions we have in how humans have co-evolved with our technology. Mm-hmm. Just think about the way artificial lighting has changed the way humans live and sleep. I mean, number one, it allows us to live in places that don't have a lot of natural light. So we we can adapt to a much more indoor lifestyle. Uh, Another thing is that I know some scientists think that humans used to have different sleep patterns than we largely have now. That back Back in the days before artificial lighting, biphasic sleep was very common where you would sleep twice a day in shorter little blocks instead of one long sleep at night. Yeah, and you would actually spend that time between the sleeps doing, you know, various things. You might be doing, uh, you know, actual social visits, for example. Right, but as artificial lighting, indoor lighting became much more common and cheaper and more widespread, that just kind of faded away. And now in most of the world, it's very common to sleep in just one big chunk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or think about all the ways that artificial lighting has made learning easier. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you weren't able to read except like outside in the daytime. Right. Or think about all of the other human inventions that would be absolutely useless without artificial light. I mean, not, not even including all the ones that use light obviously like we couldn't have our computer screens television things like that yeah Yeah, if they didn't emit light for us to see but we couldn't have a submarine without artificial light right oh yeah it's it's absolutely fundamental it's crucial uh it's a it's a bedrock of all the other technology that we use in our lives yeah i would not be excited about driving a car past dusk right <laughs> oh exactly yeah yeah if you didn't have headlights yeah it's it's almost ridiculous to try to imagine the world we live in without it and yet it gets no credit we we don't really think to be thankful for artificial light very often it was a big climb to get to having artificial light that's as good and as cheap and as plentiful as it is today oh yeah and it makes me wonder what the future is for being able to see things sure. for artificial light. Yeah. Uh, so today we wanted to kind of uh, dive into the history of how people have created light and then talk about some of the ways that it is that it is going in the future and, yeah. and technologies that are up and coming that we're excited about. Yeah. Yeah. So we obviously had some source of artificial light, even if it was pretty crude and, and not awesome, but we had some source as soon as we had fire. Bernie, as you may, yeah. as you yeah. may refer to yes. it as. So, uh, yeah, and it, it probably wasn't that long after humans discovered fire that they started to figure out ways of transporting that fire and keeping that fire uh, burning so that they could use it as a light source um, and... Thus, we get to one of the earliest forms, the oil lamp. Mm. So, Tell me about oil lamps, Jonathan. All right. So let's say that you first you got to find some form of vessel. Uh, it doesn't have to be artificial. You could actually find like maybe a shell or a rock that has a, a kind of a, a hollow concave, area in it. Concave. Yeah, yeah, concave area in it. And then you uh, put some form of flammable material, let's say moss, in it. And you then you soak that moss actually in animal fat, which would be the oil in this case. And you light the fire. The oil and moss together work as fuel. 
so that the fire remains lit. You can actually move the rock around so that you can carry the fire with you. And this is the example of an oil lamp. Uh, these date back thousands of years before written history. We have found examples of oil lamps. Oh, wow. So so to like if, if you're just not done with your cave painting and you really want to get it right. done tonight, you can... Or, or if you've gone on one of those amazing cave painting uh, wine tours with your fellow <laughs> cave painters and you're going cave to cave mm -hmm. and it's getting late, you know, you got to still be able to see before you, you know, you don't want to skip the last cave. That was the best one. I think, to be fair, wine was a little bit after these oil lamps. Oh, I'm W-H-I-N-E. The cave oh. painters were notorious complainers. Oh, okay. Another thing, I'm not so sure about that. We could look it up, but I think... Humans have had alcohol for a long, <laughs> long time. But, you know, you bring up cave paintings. That's another thing. You know, if you don't have some source of light that you can carry around with you, how do you think these deep internal cave paintings were done? I mean, people have to be able to see their work. Yeah, exactly. Sure. So, uh, you know, what's interesting to me is that the oil lamp stuck around from prehistory for a really long time. We're talking about seeing improvements to the oil lamp made in the 18th century. Oof, <laughs> so oof. so thousands of years here. And that's when uh, Ame Argand invented a lamp that was uh, more efficient <laughs> and that it consumed more of the wick and the oil, which meant that you didn't have to trim the wick away. Like the, the burning wick, uh, once it was essentially turned into carbon, you needed to remove it. Um, mm -hmm. So this would be the way of uh, where it was more of it was being consumed. So you wouldn't have to trim as frequently. Uh, so that was a, a big improvement. But oil lamps were eventually replaced by kerosene lamps in the 1850s. Uh, 9,000 years ago is when we started having wine. Maybe. Right. Sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> I was about to say, like, do, when did we start having wine in the office? <laughs> kind of awesome. Uh, so, uh, but we as humans, I got it. Uh, but yeah, oil lamps were replaced by kerosene lamps in the 1850s, which uses obviously kerosene as a fuel uh, and a wick or mantle as the means of having the flame. Uh, then we also have gas lamps. Now, this is kind of interesting. So oil lamps and kerosene lamps, neither of those were necessarily good for lighting something like a street. These were usually mm -hmm. small lamps that were good to carry around. Like if you ever see uh, depictions of a character carrying a, a small flame lantern around, that's probably either an oil lamp or a kerosene lamp. Uh, but gas lamps use coal gas as fuel. And the earliest example I could find dates from 1792. So actually predates kerosene lamps. Uh, mm. That was when William Murdoch used coal gas to light his home as an experiment. Mm. I guess if you are convinced that your idea is going to work, outfitting your own home with something that could potentially kill you is the way to go. So did William Murdoch live long enough to be recognized for his achievement? He did. He actually eventually <laughs> outfitted his workplace, which was the Soho Foundry, with gas lamps. And by the early 1800s, gas lamps would start to become installed in several cities in Europe. Uh, Baltimore became the first city in the United States to have gas lamps. And there are other areas, other cities in the U.S. that still have some gas lamp districts. Uh, where either the gas lamps were rebuilt or preserved, 
Um, like San Diego has an amazing gas lamp district. Hmm. Uh, and gas lamps remained the main method of lighting streets and homes until the early 20th century. So it stuck around for a good while. Uh, but somewhere in the meanwhile, all of this time we've been talking about burning stuff yeah. to create light. Yep. Uh, what what about this newfangled electricity idea that was starting to hit the scene? Yeah, uh, there were a lot of people... Uh, experimenting with it. Uh, as soon as you got Volta with the voltaic pile, once once that discovery was made, everyone was wondering if there could be really cool uses for this discovery. Uh, one of those people was uh, a British inventor, Humphrey Davy, who in 1802 connected a pair of voltaic piles to a pair of uh, charcoal electrodes and an arc of light emitted between the two carbon rods. Now, it was not a practical source of artificial light because, one, it was way too bright. You could not use it to light uh, a a home. It would just be too uncomfortable. The light would be too intense. The second problem was it consumed those carbon rods very quickly. So before long, you would not be able to generate light at all. So first it would be too much light, and then there would be no light. So It's kind of like <laughs> trying to light your home with a sparkler. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. not, not a great... Not a great experience, uh, at least not if you're over the age of, like, 10. Uh, so uh, eventually William State would make improvements to arc lamps in 1848, creating a clockwork mechanism that governed the movement of those carbon rods to maximize that fuel, to consume as much of them as possible before the connection was lost. So in other words, it would move the rods in relation to one another to try and keep the arc going as long as it possibly could. I'm picturing something like a like a clockwork spit roast for, for the <laughs> carbon rods. I'm not sure if that's what it looked like. I have not seen a picture, so I'm going to say you are 100% accurate. Huzzah! And I, <laughs> and I could be 100% uncertain of that. Uh so the problem was that State's invention was costly, so it didn't really take off either. But the the promise of using electricity as a source of light in some way remained. Well, when did we get the incandescent bulbs that we're all so familiar with? Oh, that's a why'd you ask me that question? That's a full episode right there, Joe. <laughs> so incandescent bulbs, the the journey to the incandescent bulb was a very long one, starting all the way back with Humphrey Davy. But you uh, have this pro progression of various inventors who all worked with electricity to try and figure out how to make something incandesce, uh, which is all about heat. You heat up a material to a temperature high enough to make it glow. That light. is incandescence. That yes. is incandescence. That's what we mean when we say an incandescent bulb. We're talking about heating up a filament, some form of material, to a temperature high enough where it will glow. It'll get hot enough to glow at a uh, incredible uh, luminescence so that you can actually see by it. So we're talking super hot here. Warm. Yeah. You not know, this cold. Is, if you've ever touched a light bulb after it had just been turned off, you know what I'm talking about. They can get super hot. Um, and we're and the ones we're using today are not as hot as some of the earlier ones. Uh, at any rate, uh, the filament is consumed in this process, right? As you heat it up, it actually begins to essentially burn away. Mm -hmm. uh, so that means eventually you get to a point where the filament's going to break. 
somewhere along this connection. Because it's disintegrated enough. Or... Yeah, yeah. It's essentially there's there are little breaks that, that open up until there's no longer a connection. Like it, it just breaks in half mm-hmm. or maybe not in half, but somewhere along its length. And you have electrodes on either side. Well, now you no longer have a, a pathway for electricity to flow through. So that's when the light burns out. That's when you get the the dead bulb. If you ever have picked up an incandescent bulb after it's burned out and given it a little shake and you hear that little tingle, you tingle, tingle poof, sound, poof, poof, poof. Yeah. That's, the, that's the broken filament inside just t- dancing around because it's not connected to anything anymore. <laughs> uh, so early incandescent bulbs were problematic because the filaments burned out after a very short time. And it took some time for people to figure out how to fix this. One of the big developments was, hey, we need to remove the filament from oxygen so that it doesn't burn. So that means we have to put it in some form of container and create a vacuum. So early uh, light bulbs were put in vacuum tubes, but vacuum tube technology was not very good in the early 19th century. It would not be until Thomas Edison came around. Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. Not at all. No. He is often credited as the inventor of the light bulb. He did not. He invented, essentially, the first commercially viable light bulb, the first one to remain l- working long enough for it to be an actual u- useful thing, right? Um so he started experimenting with a couple of different types of filaments and eventually discovered that a carbon-coated filament in an oxygen-free glass bulb could last several hours, like 40, Woo. 40 hours of light uh, before burning out. Uh, so Edison was not the first one to make the use of the container free of oxygen. Like I said, the other people, had, other people had tried to make vacuum tubes, but Edison's approach was sort of the perfection of that art. Uh uh, the, the the application of tungsten um, was another big development mm-hmm. in this light bulb process. Tungsten being a metal that has a melting point of up to above six thousand degrees Fahrenheit, which is something around uh, thirty four hundred degrees Celsius, and that's high. That's yeah. high, y'all. Um, lots of metals give off mostly heat, aka infrared photons, um, when they're electrified, but infrared light is invisible and therefore does not help us for light bulb purposes. Right. Uh, also, if you get most metals too hot, they'll just melt, yeah. which is not useful for light bulbs either. No. So uh, you, you can heat tungsten, though, to a comfortable like like 4000 degrees Fahrenheit or uh, 2200 Celsius, and it'll stay solid and emit lots of visible light. Yeah. So when I was saying these things get hot, I was not kidding. Quite warm. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, is that a plain old vacuum tube is not the best thing for tungsten because uh, when, when it heats up like that, it'll start shedding atoms that mm-hmm. will eventually collect on the inside of the bulb, which will darken it over time, which, again, is not conducive to things what you want to make light for you. Right. Uh, but different gases um, in, in, in that vacuum tube, say inert gases, mm-hmm. because you don't want... Free electrons yeah, yeah. gases floating around no. in there. Yeah, uh, have been uh, d- different gases that are inert have been experimented with. Nice. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention also were halogen light bulbs. Uh, you guys have a lot of experience with halogen light bulbs. So my I'm, I'm aware of them. My house, my <laughs> house has is crazy. My house was made with all these different types of light fixtures, no two of which appear to <laughs> accept the same kind of light bulb. So. Uh-huh. You can imagine how I feel whenever a light bulb burns out. You're like, <laughs> I have to go through the closet of light bulbs to find the right one. 
some of them are halogen light bulbs. So they also work through incandescence. Uh, they use a tungsten filament, like Lauren was mentioning, so similar, but inside a quartz envelope that's filled with halogen gas. Now, the halogen gas combines with the tungsten vapor that's given off while the tungsten is incandescing. So while normally the filament would be kind of vaporizing away over time until mm. it breaks and then your light bulb burns out, uh, in a halogen bulb, it that, that vapor combines with the halogen gas, and the halogen gas will redeposit tungsten on the filament. So it preserves the life of the filament. It extends it. It's not extended indefinitely. It will still burn out. But it does mean that the halogen light bulb will remain viable longer because of this redepositing. That's so metal. It is so metal. <laughs> so that those are the incandescent bulbs. Well, incandescent bulbs are a thing of the past, right? I mean, that's that's there are more and more places on Earth where you are not even allowed to buy them anymore. For energy efficiency purposes, that's great, though. Just aesthetically, it is a little sad. I like the glow of an incandescent I know, bulb. Right? Yeah, yeah, they are. They do have a very kind of warm glow to them. Understandably, since because the, stuff's on fire. Exactly. But yeah, the of course. So hot. They, they don't live as long, <laughs> and they don't. They're they're not great at energy efficiency, are right. they? No, they're not. And we'll so what, talk more what's about better? That what's better? Well, next we've got the fluorescent bulbs, yeah. which have their own uh, issues. But fluorescent bulbs work <laughs> in a different way. So a fluorescent bulb contains a pair of electrodes. So that's similar to an incandescent bulb. But instead, right. of, you don't have a filament in this case, right? Mm -hmm. You just have... Well, you have a gas filament. Yeah, I guess so. It's not a physical. It's not like an actual solid filament, I should mm -hmm. say. Right, It is right. physical. It's just gas. So these pair of electrodes, uh, you also have some mercury. Uh, not Freddie Mercury, which would be fabulous. Yeah, yeah, don't don't stuff him into vacuum tubes. That's not nice. At all. <laughs> no, no, uh, yeah, he's your best friend. So you've got the bit of mercury, you've got an inert gas, usually argon, and a phosphor powder coating on the inside of the glass. So when you turn on a fluorescent lamp, current flows to the electrodes. All right, mm -hmm. that creates a a difference of voltage across the two electrodes, and the electron movement excites the mercury. Some of that mercury changes from liquid, which is what mercury tends to be in, in room temperature, to a gas. So you get collisions between the electrons coming through the electrodes uh, and the charged particles with the mercury gas atoms. That bumps up the electrons to a higher energy level. Now, uh, which is how any kind of photon is created. Exactly. It's when, when an electron returns to its normal energy state. It After has to, being excited. Yeah, it has to give off that excess energy, right? Mm -hmm. So if I if I excite an electron, if I energize an electron so it bumps up to a higher energy level, and then I stop, well, then the electron is going to return to its normal state. Yeah, it goes, oh, oh, party's over. Yeah, but then it's like, well, <laughs> I can't carry all this extra energy with me. i got to get rid of it. So it, it emits it in the form of a photon, mm -hmm. which is the basic particle of light. However, in this case, we're talking about photons in the ultraviolet range, which means that you and I can't see them. And that is where that phosphor coating comes in. Yeah, because in this case, the phosphor coating, what it can do is absorb that ultraviolet radiation. It has the same sort of uh, 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 process where the electrons in the phosphor uh, coating get yeah. excited. They yeah, go yeah, up. They, they're like, ooh, ooh, ultraviolet. Yeah, awesome. They jump up and then return to normal. But they emit light within the visible spectrum. Right. So it's it's kind of like it's like a step by step process of trying to get light from visible light from this from this approach. And uh, that's exactly how these things work. So it's pretty cool. Um, Literally much cooler. Yeah. It doesn't involve incandescing. Of course, now we live in the age of the LED bulb. Yes. Mm -hmm. And 
this is kind of a game changer in a way. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, LEDs also still have a lot of challenges, but I'll cover that in a second. Uh, light emitting diodes. Also, that's what LED stands for. And uh, they are ta- type of solid state lighting or SSL. So solid state sounds pretty cool. You're like, all right, so how does this thing work? Well, we have to talk about semiconductors. Again? I know. I'm sorry. No, we love talking about semiconductors. I love talking about them. I wish I had a truly deep understanding of them. I have a basic level understanding of semiconductor technology, maybe a little beyond basic, but I always, every time I go into this, I'm always like, am I explaining this correctly? So with semiconductors, (laughs) you have... uh, You're doing great, Jonathan. Thank you. You have positively charged sections and negatively charged sections. So... The negatively charged area of the semiconductor has an excess of electrons. That's what creates the negative charge, right? Yeah. The positively charged section we call, uh, we say that it has holes. In other words, it has the capacity to accept electrons. Okay, so it has the ability to create a flow from one side to the other. Yeah, you. it essentially says, hey, you know, if you got electrons, send them on over because I got some space, dude. I mean, like, we could totally crash over here. I need a roomie. Rent is high. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like uh, living in San Francisco. So in this case, uh, you also have an area in between the two where you it, it's a mixture kind of. You have the holes and you have electrons. The electrons fill the first adjacent line of holes. And unless you give more energy to the negative side, uh, it reaches a level of equilibrium where there's kind of a, a barrier between the, the uh, P type, that's the positive side, and the N type, uh, that's the negative side, uh, material in the semiconductor. And that uh, area in between is called the depletion zone, which I like to think is where you send Superman villains if the negative zone fills up. Um, (laughs) So when you introduce electricity to the semiconductor on the inside of the material, the electrons are pushed from the negative side to the positive side. They can overcome the depletion zone. Uh, Now, when they get to the positive side, they enter the holes. The holes are at a lower energy level than the electrons, the excited electrons are. So the electrons move into the holes. They emit that excess of energy in the form of a photon, just as we were talking about with the fluorescent bulbs. And thus you get light. And this flow, by the way, only works in one direction. Diodes, uh, that's a very important electronic component. And that's the that's one of the cool things about them. They allow electricity to flow in one direction, but not the other way. And it has to go from N-type to P-type because it's, you know, you can't, you can't make uh, uh, negatively charged particles go into a neg- negatively charged area because the like charges are going to not uh, without, each other. Not without a lot of effort. Yeah, you got to push really hard. So now that we've sort of looked at how, where we've gotten to, we've sort of caught up with what modern technology has to offer yeah. in lighting. What does the future hold? I mean, one of the things we can look at is just the the efficiency of electrical light bulbs. Right. Yeah, They've yeah, come like, a long way. Right. Sure. Yeah. Like, like why we're addressing this question at all. You know, like we have a lot of things that work right now, but how well do they work? Right. right. Why, well, why are incandescent bulbs considered to be awful when uh, why are these other ones considered to be great? Here's one experiment you can try. Yeah. Actually, don't try this because you might burn yourself. Okay. <laughs> Go up to an old incandescent bulb while okay. it's on and touch it. Don't do this. <laughs> it can get really I'm hot. Mixed signals from you, Joe. <laughs> You're it, telling me to do something and then no, not to do it. No, don't do this because you can burn your hand. Right. It, it can get really hot. Yes. What What is heat 
Heat is waste. Heat, heat is, heat is yeah. wasted energy. Right. It means that you are you are pouring all this electricity in to generate the heat, which in turn generates the light. But that's that means that if there are alternatives where you don't have to heat up a material to this incredible temperature right. in order to get the light, then maybe you could be more efficient. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're wasting photons in that infrared zone, which unless you're Jordi LaForge, you cannot see. Yeah. yeah so ideally what you would want is... Or predator. Is some kind of (laughs) thank you, thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome. Ideally, you'd want a device where all of the energy going into it gets converted directly to visible photons. (laughs) Right, that would be wonderful. I mean, that's never going to happen, but it would be the goal, right? (laughs) Yeah, but (laughs) the closer the closer you can get to that, the higher the efficiency of your bulb or your light producing uh, artifact. So let's let's do a quick comparison of the three major types that we mentioned, the incandescent, fluorescent, and LEDs. Yeah. All right. So incandescent, modern 60-watt incandescent light bulbs have a life expectancy of around 1,200 hours of use. So well beyond the 40 hours of Edison's first light bulbs. Edison, by the way, managed to get those uh, light bulbs up to a much higher hours of lifetime than 40. So... Uh, they use 3,000 kilowatt hours of electricity over the span of 50,000 hours of use. Now, you might be saying, wait, a 60-watt incandescent light bulb has 1,200 hours of lifetime. How could you get 50,000 hours of use out of it? Well, you couldn't get 50,000 hours of use out of one. You would have you would have to have enough of these light bulbs to get the equivalent of 50,000 hours of use. In this case, 42 light bulbs to get 50,000 hours of use. Over that 50,000 hours, you would be using 3,000 kilowatt hours of electricity. All right. So we got that all the way. Uh, Also, side note, they're pretty easy to manufacture. Yes. Yes. Which is is positive for them. It is important because that factors into how expensive they're going to be when you are going to buy them. So while they might not be terribly efficient... They're also not hard to make, so they're not expensive. Then you've got fluorescent bulbs, which last for approximately 10,000 hours, so nearly 10 times as long as uh, the the incandescent bulbs. They require 14 watts to reach the light equivalent of a 60-watt incandescent bulb. So they need less of a wattage to reach that same luminescence. Mm -hmm. They use 700 kilowatt hours over 50,000 hours of use, and you would just need five of them to reach that 50,000 hours. But they're a little harder to make. A little bit. And they also contain mercury. So that's another thing that you should remember, that if you're ever disposing of fluorescent bulbs, you got to be careful with them because mercury is poisonous. Yeah, don't break it open and lick it. No. But don't, I don't know what would possess you to do that, but definitely don't do it. <laughs> Finally, we've got the LED bulbs. They can last 50,000 hours on a single bulb. So they can hit that 50,000 all in just one bulb. Uh, a 10-watt LED bulb can give the equivalent light of a 60-watt incandescent bulb. Uh, it uses 500 kilowatt hours of electricity over the course of 50,000 hours of use. But here's the thing about LED bulbs. They're pretty much a pain in the butt to manufacture. Yeah, so if you've ever shopped for light bulbs and you've looked for LED bulbs thinking, I want to be as uh, as efficient with my energy use as possible, you're going to see that the price tag for those LED bulbs is significantly higher than for your alternatives. Uh, and if you did the math over the lifetime of the light bulbs and the amount of energy you would use, you would probably see that the LED is going to save you the money in the long run, but it has a higher upfront cost. So mm-hmm. it all depends on your situation, right? If you can afford the upfront cost, then it makes perfect sense to go and outfit your home with LED lights. 
again, like my house has got all these different weird light fixtures, some of which do not have LED alternatives for them. Ah, mm-hmm. Like there's not an LED light that's made in that size yet, <laughs> or at least not one that I have been able to find. Uh, so it's uh, an exercise in frustration for me. But uh, even if they did have all the LED fixtures, I'm not sure that I would be able to do it because that would be really expensive to buy lights for every single fixture in my house. Like, that's a big upfront cost. That is. Now, again, over the lifetime, I'd be saving money. But if I don't have the cash to pay for it up front, then it doesn't help. cheaper in the long run. Yeah. (laughs) You know, one of the areas in which we've talked about using LEDs for future applications is in vertical farming. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, one of the problems with vertical farming, we've talked about vertical farming on the show before. The Mm -hmm. idea is that you, you know, sort of stack up a greenhouse model within your cities. And this solves a lot of problems. The crops are less exposed to the, you know, the weather. And so they're they're less vulnerable to changes in climate and weather. They're also closer to their final destination because a lot of the food we consume is in cities, but you can't grow it in the cities normally. Uh, so it has lo- large transportation costs. There's spoilage. Having stuff in cities is good, but at the same time, it's hard to get all the light you need mm-hmm. to get yeah. even light distribution for your crops when you've got them stacked up in in a skyscraper. Yeah, everything, even if it's... everything on the outside edge is going to have, you know, or at least everything on the eastern and western sides of the outside edge <laughs> yeah. are going to have plenty of sun exposure. But some of the other areas, particularly the ones further inside, are not. Right. So what a lot of people who have researched vertical farming have said is that, well... You're really just going to have to supplement it with artificial lighting. Mm-hmm. Now, you you can use artificial lighting to help plants grow and grow healthy. Oh, sure. You can use LED bulbs like we've been talking about. But part of the problem there is once you're investing that much money and energy into growing them in the city with all these light bulbs, is there really actually an advantage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might be negating that, that cost savings and effort savings. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, But one of the interesting solutions I've seen to this is the idea of using only pink LED light. The idea behind this is that plants need light to grow and survive. Uh, Sure, they photosynthesize it. Right, but they might not need the entire visible spectrum. So some plants can survive on only some narrower frequency bands of light. And actually, so there are these things called pink, pink houses. Okay. Uh, which are growing facilities that only use certain frequencies of light and use less energy by doing that and not producing white light, which, is, which requires all the frequencies of light. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, make, it makes sense when you think about it uh, in terms of color theory. Since plants are green, they're, they're reflecting a lot of those green spectrum photons. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Or wavelengths, I'm sorry. Well, uh, either way. Yeah. I'm still physically correct. Light behaves as both a wave and a particle. Right. So. Certainly. Um, Um, Right, right. So, uh, so yeah, if you just shoot the kind of light that they're going to absorb anyway, Adam, then you're... You're in good shape. Yeah. Anyway, I I thought that was interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Another question is simply how efficient can we make our LED lights? Sure. For these kind of things. LED lights are already very efficient. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've done a really, really good job getting them 
pretty darn efficient. As far as energy consumption goes. Yes. Oh, sure, sure. And it's definitely a possibility that the expensive processes and technologies that go into making LED bulbs will be streamlined in the future. Those kind of technologies improve all the time. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So even if the bulbs themselves can't get much <clears throat> more efficient, maybe the process of making them can. Right. Yeah. No, And that's that's definitely something that I think will improve um, maybe it will improve gradually over time. It's kind of, to me, it's the same as microchips. They are one, it was one of those things where uh, we do get improvements in the processes, but uh, it tends to be this kind of tick-tock approach. That's what Intel calls it. They'll, they'll create the technology to make microprocessors with ever, ever smaller uh, uh, transistors or, or discrete elements on it. And then the talk part is where they maximize that technology and really are able to uh, take advantage of it to the greatest extent they can before the next tick where they make it even smaller. So the talk tends to be a little bit uh, more cost effective because they've already made the investment into increasing the technology so they can make these uh, increasingly small uh, elements on a on a silicon chip, so we might see something like that for light emitting diodes. But there are other other alternatives, folks. You mean apart from LEDs? There are. Tell me about the bulb of the future. Light, which might not be bulb shaped. No, it Who might. Not, it could actually may not even need to have a. Uh, uh, it may not need to be encapsulated in anything. Light emitting electrochemical cells. So that sounds really complicated. They're sometimes called LECs or sometimes LEECs because it's light emitting. Lease. So wouldn't it be leak? (laughs) Well, I guess it all depends on whether you think it's a hard C or a soft C. So it sounds like it's a mouthful, the the light emitting electrochemical cells. Uh, But first, you know, electrochemical cells are something that we're all familiar with already. Batteries are an example of an electrochemical cell. Mm-hmm. Sure. So electrochemical cells are just, they, they allow either the transmission of, generation of, uh, of electricity through some form of chemical reaction. Now, in the case of light emitting electrochemical cells, well, the whole thing's in the name, right? It emits light when you have uh, electricity introduced into this. So it's a solid state device, kind of like LEDs, but uh, let's talk about it in the fir- form of a sandwich, all right? <laughs> what okay. kind of sandwich? It would, it would be a polymer sandwich, because mm. you talk about whatever's in the middle is the sandwich part, right? Like, you, you wouldn't, uh, you would say like a, you know, a roast beef sandwich, the roast beef's in the middle, it's not the bread part. So in this okay. case, it'd be a polymer sandwich. Okay. So the middle of the sandwich is the light-emitting polymer, which is filled with mobile ions, uh, the bottom of the sandwich, the base of the bulb, in other words, could be, if you wanted it to be, it could be an opaque electrode. It wouldn't have to be. Uh, the top layer would have to be transparent in order to let light pass through. Otherwise, you would have these opaque coverings and light would be generated in between them, but you wouldn't be able to see it, right? Yeah, and, that wouldn't be useful as a light bulb. It would be, yeah, it'd be like if you got a light bulb dipped it in paint and then... The paint was so thick that it would not allow light to pass through. It's not useful. So uh, a lot of them will use uh, you know, various types of very thin, thin layers to act as these electrodes that are effectively transparent. Uh, so like indium-10 oxide was used in a lot of the early ones. I'm seeing now that graphene is starting to be used in, in prototype yeah, yeah, LECs. Yeah, yeah, so graphene, by the way, in case you forgot, that's the uh, sheet of carbon atoms that's one atom thick. Uh, if you were to roll graphene into a tube, you would have a carbon nanotube. 
Um, so graphene is being used as the electrode of choice by a lot of different researchers. And one of the biggest advantages of LECs over LEDs is that they are potentially way easier to mass produce. So we had talked about how LEDs have this production challenge, that it's it's a very uh, intensive energy inefficient means of making the light bulbs. The light bulbs themselves are efficient, but the manufacturing process isn't as, because uh, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on. LECs are potentially way less complicated. You could print them because you don't have to worry about precision as much. Printing is not a very precise way of going about making something because the layers of, think of it as ink, can vary greatly across an entire sheet. However, with LECs, that thickness is not critical to the operation of the LEC. So you could do it using this kind of method of production and not worry about impacting the effectiveness of the ultimate bulb that you create. That's cool. Yeah, so you could make a lot of it, potentially you could make a lot of it much more quickly than you could with LEDs, thus bringing the cost way down for the consumer. Uh, now... There are some challenges. One of the big ones is getting LECs to have their lifetime up to comparable levels with the other technologies. So according to a report in the journal uh, Chemical Science, researchers at the universities of, uh, is it Basel? Basel? B-A-S-E-L. This is where I have no idea. And Valencia! That one I know how to say! <laughs> uh, they have created LECs with an effective life of 2,500 hours. So that's better than incandescent bulbs already. Yes. It's almost it more than twice uh, the lifetime of your average incandescent bulb mm -hmm. at 60 watts anyway, uh, but still well below LEDs, which are at 50,000 hours. So it, it's not it's it's promising. It's not uh, at the level right now where you would necessarily switch from one to the other, even if it were ready for uh, for the consumer production, which it yeah. isn't necessarily. No, it's not. Um, also, they might never be as quick acting as LEDs. Mm. Uh, one benefit of LEDs is that you turn it on, you, you flip the switch and the bulb turns on pretty much instantaneously, Yeah. Um, which is also a good point on uh, incandescent bulbs. But depending on what substance um, you're using as an emitter for the LEC, it can take a while for, for the photons to start photoning. No, right. So, so it would be kind of like a fluorescent bulb. Like an old school fluorescent bulb. These yeah. days they've got these uh, these like proactive switches in them that are carrying a little bit of a charge yeah. to begin with so that they can, they can have like a dim section, a, a, a dim session. And so, then it's, so it's like a step up. Completely. Right. So right. that way. Yeah. yeah. Cause I remember those old bulbs where you would turn it on and you would get the little flickering tink. Well, which also can happen as the bulb gets older and the electrodes start to have. Issues. Sure. Sure. That's also where you used to get the, uh, that annoying buzzing noise that fluorescent bulbs used to make. Uh, you don't get it so much anymore because they, they have these little starters. As Ned Flanders would say, they hum like angels. <laughs> it's odd, though, right? Because we all still have the association of those things. When we think fluorescent bulbs, those are the sort of things we think about, or at least those are the sort of things I think about when I mm -hmm. think fluorescent bulbs, even if it may not no longer Bring be true accurate. anymore. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, so we might never get an LEC TV is, mm -hmm. is the thing. Like, it's probably never going to be the best technology for things that need to refresh at a at a constant rate. Like a, like a high graphic display. Um, but there are some really cool potentials with these things. Um, for, for instance, you can create lots of different colors of light depending on what substance you're using as an emitter. Um, uh, researchers are actually still kind of working on making good, clean white light. 
from LECs. It's yeah. the, w- one of the current challenges in getting the product out to market. If you want a lavender bulb, boy, Done. they got the technology for you. But if you want a, just a regular white bulb, we're still working on so it. So you can sell it to music venues before you can sell it to offices <laughs> or kitchens or, or something. Or high school students from like 1983. <laughs> <laughs> the Lisa Frank light. Oh my goodness, yes. Put a unicorn on that baby. Um <laughs> Yeah, and and also, um, although LECs have been most commonly created on on glass, mm-hmm. uh, you can also totally use uh, a flexible and even stretchable substrates as as your base. Yeah, this could mean that we have some truly inventive uh, light sources in our future, like things that you know the, we don't even associate with an, a, a thing that makes light now, which is really cool. Like the idea that. With some creative application of this technology, we could have totally new form factors for light sources, which uh, maybe we'll end up in Tron. <laughs> A boy can dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we had one last bit. And Joe, I think you added this in our notes. Well, I was just recalling how <laughs> maybe the future of light is that we don't need light. Oh, no. Why? Well, I do you remember back when we talked about what? humans would look like in the future right yeah you know if humans continue evolving how will we change and there was this one article in forbes i i think i recall where uh a couple of people were speculating they were drawing pictures of these humans with huge eyes and stuff and they're like this is what humans will look like in the future or at least uh that's how it was interpreted. I, th- I right. think they defended themselves by saying, like, no, 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 no. We're just kind of guessing. You know? yeah, well, yeah. they essentially what they said was we said, if you take this assumption that humans are going to be genetically modifying themselves so that they alter their appearance in some way. And if you take that assumption and extend it down this particular path, here's what they might look like. So in other words, they were saying, we never said this is what humans are going to look like. We said this is what humans could look like, which I think at that point you wonder why would you bother even making the picture? Well, for the sake of conversation. Yeah, maybe. yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. And, and their argument uh, being that it would be uh, evolutionarily advantageous for us to be able to see in the dark when we are colonizing new dark planets. Yeah, yeah I think they said that it would be actually uh, we would reengineer ourselves to have yeah. gigantic eyes that could take in huge amounts of, you know, the uh basically could see in the dark right. very well right? because that would be more energy efficient. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't have to waste so much energy to on artificial light. lighting yeah. if we could just see in the dark. Right. Uh, I mean, aside from the concerns about how feasible that kind of genetic engineering is, I don't know. I mean, I, that seems kind of far fetched to me, but I guess I can't dismiss it out of hand. It, maybe someday we would change ourselves. Uh, another way we could think about it is, uh, let's imagine that we become much more comfortable with wearing some kind of goggles all the time. You know, like the the next stage beyond HoloLens and Google Glass, we, we have some kind of augmented reality uh, tech goggles that we use. Would it just be that we decide, hey, it's actually much more efficient instead of lighting all our environments to just have our glasses all have night vision? Mm-hmm. Uh I, again, seems kind of far fetched, but maybe who maybe. knows? Maybe I guess I guess it would depend on on again uh, how the manufacture of those technologies moved along. Uh, right now, it's still relatively expensive to create reliable night vision. So, yeah. mm, uh, but yeah, uh, if it's 
you have to reach that tipping point, right? Where the alternative is more energy efficient and more economical than the uh, artificial light. Mm -hmm. And until we reach that point, then artificial light is clearly going to be more uh, more abundant. I just imagine that <clears throat> if we do come to that stage where we're, we're all just looking through night vision goggles in dark houses all the time. What's that going to be like for our pets? I'm just thinking heaven, I think I'm just thinking <laughs> coming home one day and saying, honey, I looked at I looked at the store. Light bulbs are twenty thousand dollars a piece. I'm getting my eyes and biggened. I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> yes. Oh, I think I think cats would pry my eyelids open. <laughs> I think cats would throw us a party if we stopped putting bright lights on all the time. I don't know. They might actually get upset at the fact that we can actually see what they're up to. When the <laughs> oh, lights that's are true. Out. That's true. And cats cats are very particular about that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, well, this was kind of fun to talk about. The idea of let's just look at something that a lot of us take for granted that is a basic uh, uh, element in our lives, something that we that's all around us all the time. And we don't necessarily think about that frequently, despite the fact that we do associate having an idea with a light bulb going on. Uh, we don't necessarily actually think about the light bulbs themselves so much. So this was a lot of fun. Oh, and one last thing before, uh, before we go into our outro here, I wanted to come back with, I, I'd actually written a thing about how old wine was uh, for what the stuff. So I'm not sure why I was totally blanking on it earlier, but wine has been around, we suspect for about 9,000 years. Uh, cave paintings date back as long as 40,000 years. So there's a good amount of time during which people were probably not drunk unless they found a slightly rotten plum. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's a long time to look at cave paintings sober. Yeah. On that note, if you guys have any suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, like what's the future of wine or anything else for that matter, you should let us know. We love hearing from you, so definitely send us a message. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. At Twitter and Google+, we are FWThinking. At Facebook, just search FWThinking in the little handy-dandy search bar. We'll pop right up. Leave us a message. We look forward to hearing from you, and you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.